The nation of Israel is on a camping trip, basically, on their way to the promised land. We've had several stops along the way. Tonight we'll be in our fifth stop and sixth stop. God had easily, uh, by his standards, taken Israel out of Egypt, but he's going to have a heck of a time getting Egypt out of Israel. That's the problem. As with all of us, when we come to know Christ, he saves us to the uttermost instantaneously. We receive Christ as our Lord and Savior. Our sins are forgiven. Our destination is changed from hell to heaven, and we're as saved as we're ever going to be. But that's when the work starts. Because as excited as we are is to get out of the world and to be saved from the world and from the, the wages of sin being death, God now spends the rest of our lives trying to get the world out of us. And that's a hard thing. I'm very excited about being saved. I'm not so excited about being taught. It's a hard thing. I don't like moving on to the next lesson. I like it when I know what I'm doing. Anybody start a new job recently where it's brand new and you know nothing about it? That's a hard thing. Because you know for the first two or three weeks, if not longer, uh, you're going to feel like a pig on roller skates. You know. Well... When it comes to Jesus, this class never ends until the day we die. As Paul says, I have not attained. And if Paul hadn't attained by the time he wrote, I haven't attained, I'm in trouble. It's a long haul. It's a good thing. I mean, each and every day we sit in God's class, we get better and better. We learn if we're open to it. Sometimes we may be sitting next to the teacher's desk, like I've stated several times my entire third grade both semesters was next to the teacher's desk, but I learned more that year because I was focused. Other times we're daydreaming, we're not paying attention, and so then we've got to go over the material again. We've talked about that, where you've read three or four pages and you forgot what you've read, and you have to go back and reread. God will take the nation of Israel, and it should be about a one-year trip. We know the distance is a two-week trip, but the initial plan of God was to slowly but surely take the nation of Israel out of Egypt and take them to the promised land and teach them along the way what it meant to be a sovereign people, but a people also under God's influence. It ends up being 40 years. It didn't need to be that long. It doesn't have to be that long for us either. We can learn, be humble, change, transformed, and move on to the next lesson as fast as we want to. This is one of those you know, online courses where you can click through the slides as fast as you want to and learn as fast as you want to, provided you retain the material, you know, because each slide builds upon the next. Each class builds upon the next. It's really hard to take Algebra 2 if you never really understood Algebra 1, okay? So God is taking them through that. His first stop with them was in Sukkoth, the called tent town, reminding them that this, this world is not your home. And that's the first thing he has to teach us as believers. Don't become in, ensnared or entangled with the things of this world. Don't start having too many roots. Make sure you're tent camping down here, able to be moved from location to location without much ado about anything. The second stop was uh, Ethium, that means he was with them, means he was showing them, and he was guiding them. That was the place where he had the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke, and it was really easy and understandable. If you wanted to stay uh, uh, shaded, you stayed underneath the cloud, and that's how God leads and guides us. It shows us, just follow me, you know, stay in the shade, 
Follow the light. The third place was uh, uh, Piatroth. Yeah, that's how it's, Piatroth is how it's pronounced. But it's to see my power. He wanted them to see that he was bigger than them. He, He got them wedged in between the two rocks, and the Red Sea was before them, and the Egyptian army was behind them. He wanted them to show them that I am your strength and your power, and that I... It's a bigger plan than just you. Yes, I brought you out of Egypt. Yes, I can guide you in your life, but I also want you to know that me guiding you in your life is also to be a witness to those around you so I can gather more people unto me. And so he specifically told them, I'm going to do an awesome thing here with the Red Sea that the rest of Egypt might know that I am God. To put to rest all those rumors about other gods being anything. Their fourth Stop was Mara. That was that first place, that oasis they thought they had found where the waters were bitter, because that's what Mara means, bitter. We run into that with our walk with the Lord. The bitterness can creep in. Things can come into our past or from our past, reminding us of people we still hate even though we're saved. And God says, just throw the cross in there. Throw that cross in there. Remember how much you've been forgiven. Remember how far away from me you were, how desperate you were for salvation when you reached out to me, when you cried out to me. Remember that. And it makes those bitter waters sweet from our history. The fifth place was Eliam, means the mighty one. That's where they learned to serve God. And uh, tonight we move on to the next ones. In chapter 17, they need water. They need They're in the desert. It's an ominous place. They've realized they can trust no one but the Lord for their provision, but they're going to come to a place where they're thirsty. Apparently, they've had water up until now, you know, the 12 wells and the 70 palm trees. Remember that oasis that they found? But they've moved on from there. They're no longer by the wells. They need something more portable. And this rock is interesting that they're going to have water come from it. It follows them around the rest of the time. We don't understand what that means. We really don't have an understanding for that. Did it literally roll behind them? Was it everywhere they went? There seemed to be the rock stationed at the right spot. Was it something they carried? We really don't know, but it tells us the rock followed them through the wilderness. Maybe it was an aqueduct, an underwater river. Who knows the reasoning behind it or how it happened. It doesn't matter, but it kept them. And, of course, that symbolizes the Holy Spirit. It says in verse 1, Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out, on their journey from the wilderness of sin, according to the command of the Lord, encamped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water. And the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? There it is. That's their their go-to line. Would have been better to die in the world without thirst than to die out here with thirst, which makes no sense at all. But when you're complaining, you know, there's not a whole lot of logic involved. The... Wilderness of sin is just a a route. He calls it a journey there. We use that word now in Christianity. Sometimes these words we start using in Christianity kind of bug me. I don't know what it is. There's something about the meanings behind it that bothers me. We, We use the word community now. What's your faith community? 
I don't know why that bothers me. There's nothing wrong with community. There's nothing wrong with faith. But the way they say it and the way they use it bothers me. Why can't you call it church? Why can't you call it believers? Or what, what's with the, There's a reason they change these terms. There's another uh, term they use, and it's journey. A journey's in the Bible. We just read it. They're on a journey, but that's not how we mean it today. I'm just going through my journey, and I have to say it with that lisp because that's how it sounds to me. I'm on a, I'm on a journey. Okay. Journey almost sounds like it's just my own path, or it's, 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 my, it's my story, it's my experience, or it's my... And, and, and all that's true, so why does it bug me so much? There's a spirit behind it. There's something about it that's just not, it doesn't resonate, it doesn't hold true, it doesn't ring true to me. It's just something off about it. It's new agey is what bothers me about it. It just feels new agey, crystals and the whole thing, you know. Well, they are on a journey. They're on a path. Peter actually calls it a pilgrimage. I like that. I get that. Because they're heading towards a location, and it's just a, a, a way to get to a certain destination. It's just a, a path. They could have gone many different ways, but a pilgrimage means you learn stuff along the way. You know, it's a pilgrimage. There's stops. There's portions. And that's kind of what we've discovered so far. God stops them here, and they learn this lesson. God stops them there, and they learn this lesson. And that rings true to me in my walk with the Lord. God will move me on, and then, okay, sit down. Class is in session, you know. And you learn something from it. And I've never graduated, nor will I ever graduate, and I need to get that in my mind. I have not attained, nor will I attain, not until I'm perfected and I'm in heaven. So they complain about their thirst. I'm thirsty. I want something to drink. We're in the wilderness of sin, and there's no water around. He's, he's good. Why are you trying to kill us, Moses? Yeah, that's what I'm trying to do. It's my big plan was to draw you out and to kill you all here. <laughs> you know. Of course. Now, Moses isn't concerned. He's not worried about it. Now, maybe he's as thirsty as the rest of them, but he's not panicking. He's not even praying or asking God for water necessarily, or not that it's documented at all, but the rest of the nation of Egypt, or the rest of Israel is. Egypt is what's crying out of them, the world, the flesh. So Moses cried out to the Lord, it says, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. Hey, God, are you watching this? This is kind of his prayer. You realize you're about to hang me up by the nearest tree or throw rocks until I don't move anymore. I'm a little concerned down here. Welcome to ministry, Moses. You know, that's ministry. That's how it is a lot of times. Um, the people are learning. And they're walking with the Lord. But sometimes the world comes out of us. Sometimes it comes out sideways. And Moses needs to thicken his skin a little bit here. He's learning that. He thought it was going to be different. And we've talked about this. The first time he confronted the, the Egyptian beating the Israelite, remember when he was 40 years old and he decided to go out there and take care of his poor brethren that were out there being persecuted and oppressed. And the Egyptian was beating his fellow uh, Israelite and he took the Egyptian, he looked this way and that way, and he kills the Egyptian and buries him in the sand. You know, I'm taking care of my people kind of thing. That was ministry to him. He was called to it. He felt like that. This is what I need to do. And he's probably right. But the next day, when he sees another Israelite beating on another Israelite, he steps in and tries to correct them. And they looked at him and said, are you going to 
You're going to kill us like you killed the Egyptian? And he panicked. See, as people, we love it when God kills our enemies and takes our enemies out and delivers us from evil. We love all of that. But when he turns our attention towards us and corrects us with the same word of God we use to rebuke you know, the world, and all of a sudden he tries to rebuke us, that's when we bristle. That's when the flesh shows up. I guess we forgot we were in class. I guess we forgot we were here to learn or that the Bible study was for us, not for me to uh, take notes on, to hand to Aunt Gina who needs to know the Lord, you know? It's for us. It's always for us. Every Bible study I sit down to, to give out, or to hear from other people, the Bible study is always for me personally. Always. Has to be. Otherwise, I stop learning, and I become, well, like these guys, crying out, complaining. And I want to kill the messenger as opposed to hearing the message for what it's worth. And for its value to my life, for the change it has to make in my life. They're going to kill me. They're not going to kill you. And the Lord said to Moses, go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel, some of the other leaders. Also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place Mesa, or Massah, and Mirbah, because of the contention of the children of Israel, and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? That was more of their words. Is God really here? Is God really with us, or isn't he? That was their concern. Now, this is a beautiful picture, obviously, that uh, writer Paul to the Corinthians says this in chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. Moreover, brethren, do n- I do not want you to be unaware or ignorant that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, manna, and all drank the same spiritual drink, this water we're reading about tonight. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Christ. Christ is crucified here. This is a picture of Christ being crucified. And from that crucifixion, remember the uh, spear going into his side and the water and then blood coming out. This symbolizes that as Moses strikes the rock, which is Christ. And once smitten, living water flowed from Christ to the nation, to all who would thirst or take from him. Revelation twenty two seventeen says exactly that. And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him who hears say, Come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. That water is just flowing constantly. Ever since Christ was crucified 2,000 plus years ago, that water has been flowing for anybody to come take a drink from, and it's for all. But you have to take that drink. It's not going to be forced to you or down you. Likewise, that's the problem here. That's their, their thing. God's upset with them. He understands that they're complaining. They're crying out. So he has to smite the rock. Two things are happening here. The first one is Moses' authority is being established again. None of the other elders got to strike the rock, just him. It's his responsibility. It's his job. It's his calling. doesn't mean others couldn't do it. It's a, the difference between him and the other elders standing there is not their white hair or age or length of time with God. It's the fact that they were called. He was called to do it. That's the only difference. 
And with that comes that responsibility to smite the rock. He's the one. To represent what it looks like that God smote the rock. God delivered them out. Moses represents the Lord in this scenario. Brings them through the Red Sea. Lifts up the rod and smites all the Egyptians behind them. Leads and guides them and then also brings this water from the rock that Moses is the one. He's the called one. This is going to come up several times in their walk. Over the next 40 years, several people will try to usurp the authority of Moses. They get tired of him. They don't like his personality. They don't like the way he's leading them. They don't like this, that, or the other thing. And Moses is like, you can have it anytime you want it, and several times tries to. Hey, they're your people, God. Or, yeah, you know, Korah, you bring out your brass sensor, I'll bring out ours, and we'll see. Whatever God wants, that's all I want. And time and time again, God really reestablishes the authority of Moses and has to, has to do that. So he brings them water. He brings them lots of water, and it follows them around, Paul says, and gives them something to drink wherever they go. Now they don't have any other complaints. So they'll find other things to complain about, but they can't complain about water now. Verse 8. Now, after that, they've been doing so far so good. Um, God's going to teach them that they need to do some fighting. That's the next step in the Christian walk. First, you need to understand that God has delivered you and that he's saved you and he's training you and teaching you and that he'll fight for you and provide for you and be your strength and your guard and all that. But eventually, I don't want to just fight for you. I want to fight through you. I want to use you in this battle. I want to bring you in. And this is where service comes into play. For the Christian, the next step for maturity is to serve the Lord. Not just constantly gather and collect Bible studies or spoon-fed all the way throughout life the Word of God. You need to study to show yourself approved. Know the Word of God. Feed yourself. Be able to read and receive from the Holy Spirit on your own, but also to serve, to give out. Not just always take in. There's a lot of ponds around here, and I noticed that some of the fresh ponds, you can tell there's no scum on top because there's a constant, there's enough drainage, there's enough watershed to fill that pond and to go through the tube and to go on out and have this constant cycling that takes place. But boy, when it gets dry and there's no watershed into that pond and that gets lower and lower below the pipe, the tube, it starts to collect and become stagnant. And that's our walk with the Lord. If we don't have a constant inflow of God's word and God's Holy Spirit into our life to the point where it's, we're overflowing and it's spilling out into other people's lives, we'll become stagnant. We begin to stink and eventually die. That flow that comes into Mazingo or that flow that comes into the farm pond brings water, brings nutrients, brings all sorts of fresh whatever it is that that pond needs and the things that live in it to survive. Once that supply stops, so does the life in that pond. It takes time. Might not notice it at first, but as time goes on, eventually everything in that pond is going to perish. There's no oxygenation. There's nothing stirring it up. There's no life coming into it. Same with our walk. We have to have that. That outflow is so important for the Christians. Here we see that. Now, Amalek, he's a part of the, uh, he's from Esau's line, came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, that's our guy, right? Joshua. It's always a mixed group. There's Moses, there's the good guys, Joshua, Caleb, and some others. And there's the bad guys. There's Korah and the rebellious, and even Miriam and Aaron get into it later on. And then there's the rest of the crowd that just kind of 
waffles back and forth, is tossed, whether they're supposed to follow Joshua or they're supposed to follow, you know, Korah. Man, I don't want to be that. That's that, that's that wishy-washy group in the middle, you know. And the rebellious groups over here always talking bad about Moses, just waiting to lead the group back to Egypt anytime. Oh, just give me a chance. And there's Joshua. It's like, man, Moses is just a man, of course, but we need to follow what God's called us to follow, you know. Joshua's there. He tells Joshua, choose some men, then go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy. So they took a stone and put it under him, and, they, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his arms, or his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Beautiful picture there. The typology, of course, is Christ is now ascended and sitting up there and interceding for us through prayer. And as we do battle down here, we win and... and uh, and so on. That's the picture there. But actually happening here is a lesson. There's a lot being learned. The people are realizing that if Moses' hands aren't up, if, they're, if he's not able to lead, if he's not able to do what God's called him to do, then we all suffer. We need to support, lift up his hands, lift up his arms and make sure he's okay. They didn't take turns up there. Okay, Aaron, you hold the rod and you sit down and your turn, because my arms are tired. And then the next guy shows up. No, it's Moses' responsibility. And they all understood that. And so they slide the rock under there to make it a little easier for Moses, knowing that his shoulders at the age of 80-plus years old could only hold up the rod for so long. Anybody do that? That was one of our... It's a really hard thing to just hold a stick straight out like that and maybe squat. That's what we used to do. We hold our rifles out like that and sit as long as we... Oh, first it was fine, tough, iron. All of a sudden, you know... You do that shake because you you get to muscle failure. And so Moses is at muscle failure. But as soon as he puts his arms down, everybody starts losing. Oh, man, sorry. Sorry. You know, <laughs> I'm getting tired, guys. Well, you can do it, Moses. How about a little help here, you know? And so they hold up his arms, and Joshua was able to witness this. Joshua is feeling this real time. Keep your arms up. It's easier when you do it, you know. Hmm. It is. Joshua's learning because Joshua's going to take over. He understands the responsibility and the need to do what you're called to do. He's doing it. Look at him running out there. I love that. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this for memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is My Banner. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And the, Amal the Amalekites are gone, by the way. They're all, there aren't any. There's no more left. God did fulfill that. The Lord is my banner. A lot of banners out there that we could be waving. Go by a couple houses here in Maryville, and they've got all their banners for everything they believe standing out front. It's kind of funny how they're doing that now. You know, some of us maybe even have banners. You know, uh, I stand for this or I stand for that or whatever. 
When it comes to Moses, when it comes to the, to the nation of Israel, their banner is the Lord. That's my banner. That's what I hold up. And that's what they hold up. That's what they hold up to be true. Remember, we're ambassadors for Jesus. We're ambassadors for heaven. My citizenship is there. I'm simply on a pilgrimage down here. I'm living in a tent down here. Yes, I will occupy till he comes, and I will affect and be effective in my life as long as I'm here on this earth. But I remember that I am a citizen of heaven, and that's what I represent down here. I don't represent this, that, or the other thing. I represent the Lord. He's primary and only my banner, as he was for them. As the Lord is slowly but surely taking Egypt out of Israel, they have to go lesson by lesson. Now they have to learn a little bit from their families. In chapter 18, and Jethro, the priest of Midian, remember Jethro, that's his father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back with her two sons, of whom the name of one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. And the name of the other was Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. It's a long meaning for one word, right? And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. Now he had said to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. When was the last time we heard from her? Remember the last time we heard from his wife? He sent her back after the whole thing where God was going to kill Moses on the way to deliver Egypt. Moses talked to the burning bush. The burning bush talked back. He got his orders. He bargained with God until he got Aaron, his brother, to be on board. And they start heading out with his family, Zipporah, and the two boys are with them. And all of a sudden, God stops Moses. This is going to wipe him out because he hasn't done what he's supposed to do by circumcising his son. His wife figures this out, realizes what's happened. She takes a flint knife, cuts the foreskin off her oldest boy, throws the foreskin and says, you are a husband of blood to me, and we don't hear anything about her from there on out. And that family's been separated and divided ever since that moment until now. Until they come to the mountain of God, this family gets restored. Before Moses can lead a million, two million, three million plus people into the presence of the Lord, he better learn how to take his family there first. It's one of the requirements of service to God. If you don't have your house in order, you have no business doing anything in the church because you, you can't possibly lead the church if your house isn't in order. You can't forsake the first little flock that God gives you and takes care of, that you're to take care of, and not do well with them, and then go expect to do for the Lord. You haven't figured out the first sheep he gave you. How are you going to take care of all these sheep? Now, we don't know what happened in that story. The, the, the idea is, I mean, all we can go off of is Zipporah's anger afterwards, was she was not excited about the whole circumcision thing. She was a little bitter about the fact that she had to do what her husband should have done. And it's like that sometimes. The men are called the priests of the home. We're called to lead our families spiritually. 
We're called to teach them the Bible. We're called to lead them in the ways that they should go. And when the wife has to pick up those responsibilities and do it for the husband, there's bitterness there. There's resentment. They'll do it. They'll do it because they have to, because they know it's important, but they shouldn't have to do it. They should not be in that place where they have to teach the kids the Bible because the husband won't do his job. He's relegated the responsibility to his wife. I'm not going to do it. Maybe he thought it'd be easier. I know Zipporah isn't big on circumcision, and I don't, you know, happy wife, happy life. Not going to get into that. Just let it go. That's going to kill you. And maybe she thought that was a good idea. Well, I, I, I didn't talk to him for a week, and so there is no circumcision. I got my way. Yeah, you got your way. I don't, I don't want to argue about it. But then when it comes to ministry, all of a sudden God says, you can't be used in ministry. In fact, it's going to kill you and your family here. Fine, I'll do ministry. And she cuts off the foreskin. You're a husband of blood to me. Stupid. You know, who knows? There's a lot going on there. All I can say is, regardless of how this all went down or whether we're interpret or I'm interpreting this correctly or not, I just I can't emphasize it enough. We got to do what the Bible tells us to do as families. There's no shortcut and there's no easy way. There's no switching of responsibilities. There's no, and I don't know why he chose it this way. All I know is that his word says it to do it this way. There's no sideways way of doing it. You've got to do it the Lord's way. We'd love to see that in our children's ministry, to be honest with you. The intent of our children's ministry, and I'll take some time here, is to have a husband and wife team up and teach. The husband teach the word, the woman come alongside and help and do her part to support so that the kids get a healthy picture of what it's supposed to look like in marriage, so they know what it's supposed to look like in a home, a Christian home. So they understand that, but more and more I see we're losing that. I don't know what it is. I guess we don't think guys should be around kids or something. It's a sad thing. Guys, we are the leaders of our homes. They're watching us. Your kids are watching us. Your boys, your daughters, your sons, they're all watching you. We need to lead. They need to see us dance before the Lord and become undignified in the worship of Jesus Christ. They need to see us praying and humble and broken, asking for forgiveness at times to our wife or to our own kids. They need to see us walking this walk of Christianity, walking with Jesus. They need to see that. The mark of a man is someone who's humble and submitted to his God. That's the mark of a man. Not macho distant, tough, distant, and not talking, and unaffectionate, and I don't know where that came from. It didn't come from the Bible. These guys hug and kiss each other back then. That's okay. So I'm going to start kissing all you guys from here on out at the door, and we'll just get past this, you know? There's nothing wrong with this. Jesus wept. He handled people, he hugged, he flipped tables. None of that was um, out of his reach or out of his realm. Kids need that. Kids need to see that. Well, he didn't. And so the family's been separated since that moment, since Moses had 
just said, you know what? I'm out here watching goats. I'm a stranger in a strange land. The little woman can raise the kids and I'll do it later. I'll do what I can do. Maybe I'll teach him to hunt or something. You know, not enough. Not enough. So I'm bringing your wife to you, <laughs> Jethro says. I'm coming out. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down and kissed him. See, there they are kissing again. Okay. It's not unusual. It's okay to be affectionate. And Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them on the way and how the Lord had delivered them. Then Jethro rejoiced for all the good which the Lord had done for Israel, whom he had delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. For in the very thing in which he uh, he behaved proudly, he was above them. So this actually could be the first time that Jethro has ever just worshipped the Lord. We know he's the priest of Midian, but the priest of what? I mean, was he a polygamist? Did he believe in... Well, he was, actually. Was he a polytheist? Kind of goes with that. You know, many gods, many wives, many ways, many open to all that. Is this the first time he's realized, wait a minute, the one true and living God, there is no other God. And that's really someplace we've all got to get to eventually. I think maybe most of us are. I'm probably preaching to the choir. But to be able to say that boldly, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that no man comes to the Father but by him, and that's in all circumstances and all ways. There can be no justice without God. There can be no love without God. You can't ever have any true love. You can't have any true social justice. You can't have any true anything without God, without Jesus being the center. Maybe he realized that. It's exciting to see an actual thing happened that I can point to and say it's a miracle that took place and I know that God had to do that. Whereas before, maybe they did coincidence. Well, I prayed to, I gave an orange, you know, sacrifice to this little tiny God over here and lo and behold, I, you know, I found my camel or whatever. But you probably would have found your camel after all anyway. I wouldn't attribute it to the orange you gave to that little piece of wood over there, but maybe you did. For the first time, he sees miracles and he's excited so he's on board. So then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and other sacrifices to offer to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before, before God. It's a fellowship offering here. And so it was on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. So when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, he said, what is this thing you are doing for the people? Why do you sit? Or why do you alone sit and all the people stand before you from morning until evening? It's a long line, Moses. A lot of people had to go home. They had to take a number and show up the next day kind of thing. You didn't get through everybody. What, what is this thing you're doing? Why are they doing this? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a difficulty, they come to me. And I judge between one and another and make known the statutes of God and his laws. I kind of know what God wants and what he doesn't want. So they asked me what my opinion is, and I let them know, and so they just all come to me. So Moses' father-in-law said to him, The thing that you do is not good. Both you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out. 
For this thing is too much for you, the three million people. That's a, that's a long line. It's too much for you. You're not able to perform it by yourself. Listen now to my voice. I will give you counsel and God will be with you. Listen to what I have to say. This is great, he says. <laughs> Stand before God for the people so that you may bring the difficulties to God and you shall teach them the statutes and the laws and show them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, rulers of tens. Let them judge the people at all times. Then it will be that every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they themselves shall judge. So it will be easier for you, for they will bear the burden with you. If you do this thing, and here's the key, and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure, and all this people will also go to their place in peace. we got to streamline this a little bit. we got to make this work better. Now, this isn't as simple as just organizing, and, and, and a lot of people take this, and I've, I've heard this taught a lot of times, that this is just delegating. See, delegation, you just need to delegate. That's true, but let's, let's see who we're delegating to. This is very important. Delegation is wonderful, provided you can delegate to one of these qualified men. Here are the qualifications. They need to know the statutes and the laws of God, first and foremost. They can't just be, you know, type A personalities, which is kind of the tendency. They're a go-getter. For what, though? They need to know the statutes and the laws They need to not only know them, but then also show them the way in which they must walk. They've got to be walking the walk of Christianity, walking with Jesus in everything that they do, known for that. The third thing is, and they need to know the work involved. Since it's some volunteer position that you show up whenever you feel like it, you need to be there every single time, be counted on for this responsibility. Moreover, those aren't the only three qualifications. You need to select able men, those that fear God. They serve God more than they'll serve any man. Anybody tries to bribe them or get them to go their way or because they feel like they have this need for friendship with certain people, so they, they gotta be, if they're going to be judges, they need to be absolutely impartial. No, we're going to do what God wants. I don't care who you are or who your dad is. I don't care how much money you gave. I don't care who this is. you got to be focused on serving the Lord. You fear him. Men of truth, they don't lie. They don't exaggerate. They don't lie. And they hate covetousness. They hate covetousness. Not just they don't covet. They hate it when they see it or when they feel it coming upon themselves. They hate those things. Those six things are essential to delegate. You can't just delegate responsibilities to anybody. They need to meet these six requirements. I strive for that in my own life. I want to meet these requirements. I want to be this kind of man. I want to know the statutes and the ways of the Lord. I want to know how to walk in those. I need to know how to implement those in my life and actually show people what this looks like when God's word is worked out in a person. I want to know the work involved. I want to know the responsibility is mine. Fear God. I don't care what people think of me. 
I care what God thinks of me. I care for the people. I love them. But what's best for them is not always what they want. But you still got to give them what's best for them regardless of what they hope to receive. Truthful. You're going to do what you say you're going to do, and you're going to tell them no when you can't. Those things. Hating covetousness. Place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, rulers of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Then it will be that every great matter they're going to bring to you, there might be some big stuff they don't want to deal with, they want to bring it to you, that's fine. This is really how we get our court of appeals and so on. That's how we do our justice system. You got the minor things, you got traffic court on Thursday night, you know. And then if there's something bigger in there, you go to the county courthouse. After that, you got to go to city, then you go to the state, you know, or whatever. You work your way up to national, so you have the Supreme Court. It's kind of the idea here. Little things to big things. So Moses heeded the voice of his father-in-law in verse 24 and did all that he had said. And Moses chose able men out of all Israel, three million people, and made them heads over the people, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, rulers of tens. So they judged the people at all times, the hard cases they brought to Moses, but they judged every small case themselves. Seemed to work. It's good. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went his way to his own land. Families reunited, brought back together, accepting responsibility of Moses to lead these people, understanding that God's really at work here. And so Zipporah is alongside of him for now. It's a beautiful thing. And that's where we close tonight. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these things that are written as pictures. We have uh, Peter telling us in the New Testament that we're on a pilgrimage, but what does that mean? Well, this is what it means. This is what it looks like. We see these stops along the way. You show us this in the Old Testament. Things to learn. Things to uh, be changed in our lives. Things to implement, to use, to increase our faith. All these things are meant to draw us closer to you and to be mature believers, Lord. We thank you for that. We want that. We want meat. We want your word to change us from the inside out. And as we get past the obvious and we get past the basic doctrines of Christianity, you take us deeper and deeper and deeper, and we're excited for that. We want that. So help us to chew on this meat that we've received tonight from you, to digest it, to think on it, to let you teach us even further, but then also to walk in it. Help us to walk in it. Help us to be just a little bit more mature tomorrow than we were when we first came in tonight. We love you and we thank you for that. Thank you that you're taking us class by class, moving us from subject to subject. We can't wait for it. But we know that you said that you were going to go to prepare a place for us. And in the process, you're preparing us for that place. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need prayer before you go, please come up. Be glad to pray with you.